Karl Marx's theories sparked the Russian Revolution in 1917. His communist ideology was foundational to the USSR and other oppressive regimes, which led to the state murder of hundreds of millions of people. Yet despite the 20th century Marxist democide, Marx remains one of the most popular so-called intellectual figures of the last century, up to this day. Karl Marx is often described as one of the greatest thinkers of the 19th century. His writings have inspired revolutions and generated centuries of fierce debate. Marx's Communist Manifesto is consistently among the most frequently assigned texts in American college classrooms. But what if the Russian Revolution had never happened? Would anyone today even know who Karl Marx was? You know, if the Russian Revolution had not turned out the way that it did, Karl Marx might just be some obscure 19th century footnote in the history of philosophy. Philip Magnus, the director of research and education at AIER, and his colleague Michael McAvey set out to do just that. What did they discover? In this episode of Liberty Curious, you're about to find out. But first, let's start with for people who don't know or for people who might know partly, but maybe not everything. Who was Karl Marx? <laughs> so Karl Marx is a 19th century uh, philosopher, economist, journalist at various times in his life that uh, spends most of his uh, active years writing from London, uh, although he's a, uh, he travels across the European continent. Uh, he's associated at a very young age with radical socialist revolutionaries and he keeps getting exiled out of country after country after country till he settles down in London, uh, basically under the patronage of his friend and collaborator, uh, Frederick Engels, uh, who had an independently wealthy father that uh, basically owned a, fa a factory in Manchester and ended up subsidizing Marx over his career to write pamphlets and speeches and eventually books, uh, the most famous being Capital, which the first volume comes out in 1867. Uh, although Marx in his lifetime is not a very widely known figure. He's uh, uh, extremely popular among a very small group of fringe socialist labor activists. And even in that community, he's, a, he's an extremely schismatic thinker that's always feuding with other socialists. So he's a faction within the far-left fringe of society uh, where they almost worship the guy. They celebrate his works and think of him as the uh, uh, the leading thinker and expositor of socialism. Uh, yet beyond that, he's just one of many competing radicals in a very small peripheral fringe of 19th century Victorian society. And so what you're saying there, too, is that he didn't necessarily contribute anything to society in a productive way. He was... <laughs> He was basically getting subsidized to do this kind of work by somebody who had inherited wealth, uh, which is kind of weird because yeah, his, I yeah, yeah, his, I his ideas tend to attack the bourgeois. That, that, that is exactly it. Uh, I mean, in modern day parlance, uh, I kind of joke on this, but Marx is a, is a bit... Uh, he's he's kind of like that friend that's the couch surfer that uh, is always looking for a place to stay, always kind of uh, almost sponging off of uh, other people in his network. Uh, it's true that Marx never really has a uh, a, a viable job in his career. Uh, the closest he ever came to it, he was a part-time kind of freelance uh, writer that uh, wrote news reports for the New York Tribune, uh, basically summarized like 
stories about the Crimean War and uh, crop yields in Europe and sent them across the uh, Atlantic and they're published in the New York Tribune. Basically, it's paid for articles, does that for about a decade of his life. But outside of that, uh, he never really has a job other than uh, sitting there writing his pamphlets. Uh, socialist organizing seems to be his main thing. And as a result, he lives most of his adulthood in extreme poverty, but dependent upon his friends uh, to give him money and sustain him and his family. Hmm. Sounds kind of like uh, parasitic relationships. Uh, <laughs> but so so where did Marx's ideas come from? Like who actually influenced him to think in these kinds of ways? Yeah. So he has academic training in Germany. Uh, when he comes through a school of thought, uh, basically followers of Hegel is uh, the main uh, undercurrent of his academic training, and he comes out of the left-wing extensions of Hegel's work in the early 19th century, uh, can, considers himself a left Hegelian, although over the years he starts to pick up bits and pieces from other socialist traditions. Uh, so by the time 19, or 1848 is when uh, he is going to work on the Communist Manifesto, probably his most famous work, it's a little pamphlet that he and Engels put out together, and they try to synthesize existing socialist traditions, but they also critique them. They're basically saying, here are the things that are wrong about uh, socialists that came before us. He dismisses them, actually, calls them utopians, and tries to style himself as a new form of socialist who has applied social scientific thinking to the world. So he calls himself a scientific socialist and uh, builds basically his ideas around that. Uh, when you get into the era when he's working on capital, so this is uh, from the late 1850s to 1867s when the first volume comes out, the only one that's published in his lifetime, uh, he started to dig deeper into other economic traditions. Uh, it's styled as a critique of the classical political economists, uh, the classical economics school. That's the whole genre that basically stretches from about the era of Adam Smith through John Stuart Mill, who's his contemporary. So he draws on ideas from that, but he also synthesizes them with other socialist uh, traditions, including a few that, uh, you you know, some of his competitors in his lifetime actually accuse him of plagiarizing their ideas. And we can talk a little bit about that because uh, it goes into uh, some of the work and statistical analysis that we did as we look at who those competitors are that are contemporaries of Marx arguing for slightly different variants of socialism. Uh, so, But there's a lot of borrowing and trading of ideas from uh, people in that circle on the, on the far left. Uh, it's really hard to disentangle exactly where they come from, uh, other than we know that Marx is in correspondence with almost all of the major socialist figures of that peripheral fringe at the time. Uh, and the other thing about him is he gets into a feud with almost every single one of them. Uh, even if they agree on 99% of everything, the 1% that they disagree with uh, makes them like mortal enemies in Marx's uh, mind. Uh, so he spends most of the uh, last decade or so of his life in constant bickering and feuding with other socialists over who the true socialist uh, happens to be, who's the, the truly correct theorist. He's kind of like a caricature, you know, it sounds like, and kind of like a funny character if you think about him existing in a vacuum. And yes. if he hadn't have had, you know, the effects of, of, you know, that he did over society, which were extremely detrimental, which resulted in an ideology that killed hundreds of millions of people, yeah. right? So this is kind of like this weird juxtaposition of of who Marx actually was and what his ideas were and how he actually lived and then the greater influence that he had 
Um, and that kind of began with the Russian Revolution, is what you yeah. argue in your paper. Yeah. So there were also some German socialists who were Marxists as well, yeah. just just prior to the Russian Revolution, as I understand it. But you uh, and Makovi argue that it was really the Russian Revolution that put Marx on the map. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you want to go back to the history of our story, uh, we can start in the year 1883, which is when Marx dies in London. And very famously, uh, he has a funeral that almost nobody attends. It's Frederick Engels and about a dozen or so of his friends show up at his funeral. Engels gives an oration uh, about uh, the great Marx has passed and uh, evidently pays to uh, telegraph it around a bunch of newspapers and stuff, hoping to get it picked up. But something that even Marxist historians had noticed so Philip Foner, who's one of the uh, really prominent left-wing historians of the 20th century, uh, wrote a book about Marx's funeral and the responses to it. And in the intro to that book, he has this great little passage of, of, of summarized, basically says uh, he was surprised to realize that almost no, nobody paid attention to this funeral of this prominent figure from the uh, at least his 20th century vantage point in the 19th century basically went unnoticed. And this is something that, uh, as I've done some digging into the historical works and accounts of Marx's life, you find out it's a recurring theme that even among those that were sympathetic to him, that knew him uh, in the 19th century, they basically said, yeah, he kind of died in relative obscurity. Uh, he was known to a fellow socialist, but almost nobody else paid attention to him. Uh, so I found passages from dozens of other commentators in that era that basically make this observation. They say when he died in 1883, no one paid attention. So Arthur Balfour, who uh, later serves as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, a uh, very prominent political figure in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, he's also very well known for being extremely well read. He uh, trained as a philosopher and had a massive library and was just like this voracious consumer of books. Uh, well, he left this testimonial in 1885 uh, where he's speaking to a convention of, uh, of political theorists and he says, uh, this Karl Marx guy, no one in England knows who he is. But they've all read the works of Henry George, who's a, another contemporary of that era that had some salience in the socialist, some salience in the classical liberal worlds. Uh, so you have uh, testimonials like that. W.B. Du Bois, uh, the famous uh, 20th century African-American civil rights activist, later becomes a Marxist at the end of his life, a diehard like Stalinist Marxist at the end of his life. Uh, in his memoir in 18, or 1933, uh, he comments about his time at Harvard University in the 1890s when he's pursuing his degrees, and he says... Marx was almost never taught there, and when he was mentioned at all, he was kind of scoffed at by all the other academics in contempt. And it turns out there's a real reason behind this, and that is Marx's theories, by the moment that the ink is dry on capital in 1867, they're already on the road to obsolescence. They're based on the labor theory of value, which is value derives from work performed uh, to improve an object, which is an older theory of value. It was common in the classical school of economics, but it turns out it doesn't explain the real world very well. Uh, it, there are all sorts of paradoxical situations that emerge if you look at uh, how value is assessed in the real world. The famous one being, you know, a bag of diamonds in the desert is worthless, whereas a canteen of water is very valuable in the desert. Yet if you move that situation to a random street in the city, uh, no one would uh, pay a an entire bag of diamonds for a, a glass of water. Uh, it'd be a reverse of the situation. There's also several instances like in winemaking, the amount of work that's performed to make wine 
uh, is the same no matter where you do it in the world. And yet we know bottles of wine are priced very differently. And uh, if and they're aged in a barrel or things like that, like exactly. that gives them more value, right? So, so the labor theory of value basically means that the more labor is put into the production of something, the more that it costs. Is that? Yeah. So it's the labor performed instills the value into the good. And this is essential to the Marxist system because Marxist whole, Marx's whole grievance that he's uh, making this point about uh, throughout his works uh, revolves around a doctrine that is referred to as surplus value. And the idea here is that the owner of the factory, the owner of capital, the person that actually sells the finished good, uh, charges a much higher price than they return to the laborer in terms of wages. And he says the surplus value is basically the difference between those two. And that's a simplification of it, but the, that gist of that concept runs throughout Marx's work. So his whole mechanism for why the proletariats are to rise up and claim the means of production, seize them as their own, is to reclaim what he, he asserts as this stolen or exploited surplus value. Uh, so that's the mechanism of the system. But if it turns out that the labor theory of value is wrong, the whole system comes crumbling down. And what we found is in 1871, a couple of economists almost simultaneously discovered an alternative theory of value. This is the, what we use today, the subjective or marginal theory of value. It says that goods are valued according to subjective individual preferences at the margin of the decision. And we see this all around us. Uh, I may prefer to buy a red car. You may prefer to buy a green car. It doesn't mean red cars or green cars should be priced at a different level. More, uh, I'd be willing more uh, to pay more for a certain color that I like or a certain model that I like than you would uh, and almost anyone else that we encounter because we all have our individual preferences. And we also make those decisions. We don't do them in a vacuum. We make them relative to our own needs at the moment. So if I needed yeah. to haul a bunch of stuff around, I may have a stronger preference for a truck than a sedan and vice versa. All that kind of thing uh, goes into the consideration at the point of decision. Uh, so the marginal revolution breaks through the economics profession in 1871 with William Stanley Jevons writing in the UK and Karl Menger in uh, Vienna, Austria. They both put out textbooks that event essentially solved this problem, the theory of value. And within Marx's own lifetime, remember this is only four years after the first volume of, of Capital comes out, uh, he's already obsolete. So by the 1890s, the economics profession has left this guy behind. Uh, they've uh, examined his works, uh, found them wanting and obsolete and theoretically incoherent, self-contradicted. And they said, okay, this is a nice little footnote in the past. Let's put it behind us. So 1890, Alfred Marshall, who's one of the uh, first major theorists after the Marginal Revolution, uh, he writes the first popular wide-scale use textbook of economics. Uh, edition comes out in 1890. And the gist of what he says when he considers Karl Marx, he says, uh, this is an exercise in circular reasoning that's covered in dense Hegelian language, uh, but mm. not really worth our time to pay attention to. Uh, and this pattern continues. So his economic ideas are already pretty much falsified just shortly after he publishes this. But then something happens. Somehow, you know, all of these kind of tensions are rising. And, you know, you look at the state that Russia was in around that time, right? Like yeah. there were, it was kind of like the... Uh, the imperialist empire was uh, 
on the verge of collapse in a sense, like it was dysfunctional. There were famines. Uh, people weren't doing well there. Uh, they were very unhappy with the status quo. And so, so then what happened leading up to the Russian Revolution and how yeah. did Marx's ideas somehow, despite, despite all of that, manage to take a hold there? Yeah. So the Russian Revolution, it's a uh, fascinating event. It is the result of Tsar Nicholas basically blundering his way through World War I. Remember, it's a two-front war where uh, Germany, the, uh, the, uh, the, the German Empire, is battling both an Eastern Front through an invasion of Russia and a Western Front through an invasion of France uh, simultaneously. And that's taking a toll on both sides as well as Germany. Uh, so what happens basically in early 1917, uh, Tsar Nicholas uh, is facing massive political disruption and upheaval at home through his mismanagement of the war. And he abdicates from power in the spring of 1917. Uh, he basically gives up the czarship, uh, cedes it to a uh, kind of a quasi-Republican form of government, a government that's forms in its wake. It includes some socialists that are non-Marxian, but uh, it's a really eclectic and badly organized entity uh, that replaces him as the main governing body of Russia. So you have a major world power that has a weak, destabilized government that is plagued by infighting and corruption and ineptitude. Uh, so that lasts over the spring, summer, and early fall of 1917. And something else has happened simultaneously. Uh, Germany, as part of its war effort, decides it's basically going to send a, uh, a package into Russia to cause internal turmoil. Uh, and that package is this radical revolutionary socialist that had been exiled to Switzerland by the name of Vladimir Lenin. Uh, Lenin was an extremely fringe figure. I mean, you, you think of this as it's like a Unabomber manifesto style figure, if you want to put him into the modern era, that is writing all these crazy pamphlets about uh, how we need to stage a, a, a terroristic revolutionary upheaval of society to put the proletarians on top and bring about Marxist utopia. Uh, like a, a fanatical, devoted follower of Marxist theory. Uh, well, Lenin had been in exile in Switzerland after uh, uh, you know many years of being just this, this obscure little troublemaker getting kicked out of country after country. And the German government decides, well, hey, if we get this guy and we basically give him uh, passage across the German Empire and into Russia, he'll arrive there and he'll start trying to put his theories into action and start trying to destabilize the Russian government. Lenin does exactly that. He arrives in St. Petersburg. Uh, and discovers that the situation is extremely unstable, takes advantages of moments of weakness in uh, the way that the Russian, the new Russian government had constituted himself, and basically stages a coup d'etat. It's in November 1917, it's referred to as the October Revolution because they're on the older uh, uh, calendar system in Russia. But in November 1917, he basically stages a coup d'etat, seizes control of the Russian government, and promptly sends his bands of thugs around to shoot and murder anyone that got in his way. Murder all of the opposition. This ignites a massive civil war that plays out for the next five years. Uh, the civil war pits uh, the Bolshevik Reds, which are the, the band around uh, Lenin that seized control of the government through violent means, against a general coalition of the anti-communist whites, and these are all the other uh, factions, 
uh, well, the white army turns out to be very poorly led, has a series of mishaps, accidents of history. In some cases, it's just very unlucky. And then infighting, they end up taking out their own leaders or, or uh, uh, betraying some of them. So it's, it's a really messy situation. And over the course of this war, Lenin emerges as the stronger power uh, through force, through violence, and establishes the Soviet Union as, as victorious. Yeah, so as I told you off camera, I was watching a documentary about Lenin last night to kind of, you know, fill in some of the gaps uh, for myself. And what I found there was that Lenin, what he, what he thought, I don't know if you agree with this, but according to this documentary, what he thought differently uh, from regular Marxism was in... In Marx's theory, you had to go slowly. You had to basically right. say, like, right. over time, we're gonna we're gonna go from where we are now, uh, and then we're gonna move through the bourgeois, and then we're gonna go to socialism, and then we're gonna go to communism. But Lenin said we just got to take out that middle step and go straight to straight to communism. <laughs> you, you yeah, violently. So through- through violent revolutionary means. So some of the Marxist followers that emerged in the 1890s through 1900s, so the, that period of about two decades before World War One, had started to really water down the Marxist system. Uh, so they take these doctrines of a guy that's now been dead for a decade or so uh, in the early 1890s, and they, uh, and they start uh, morphing them into something that looks more like a a democratic socialist labor reformist cause. Uh, well, let's get our people elected to the legislature and we'll pass uh, work hour reforms and things like that, uh, which is has broader political appeal, but it's also in direct tension with the revolutionary angle of Marxist doctrine. Because if you go back and read Marx at its core, he is calling for a violent upheaval, a violent revolution. And in his own Mm. lifetime, every time there's a revolution uh, that emerges in in Europe, he's right there claiming that now's the moment to go. Uh, that's what precipitates him to write the manifesto in 1848. In 1871, there's a, uh, a band of radicals. They seize control of the city of Paris in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, so again, a time of political upheaval. And Marx is watching from across the channel in England. And he's like, ah, the revolution is here. Uh, let me jump in on this. Let me get on this game. So Marx himself is personally... A theorist of revolution, and some of the successor followers to him in the decade or two after he died started to water that down. Well, Lenin comes along in the early 1900s and says, no, 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 all of you other Marxists, you have it wrong. You've betrayed the Marxist system. You've kicked uh, the revolutionary component out of his theoretical framework and worldview, and I'm here to bring the revolution back in. I'm here to be the person that delivers on it. Uh, And that's exactly what he attempts to do in Russia in 1917. Right. So he said, we have to go this radical approach. We have to do kind of true Marxism. Because this is interesting, right? Because if just (laughs) a tangent here, but we think about nowadays when people talk about democratic socialism and they say, oh, no, well, it wasn't done the right way. The Soviet Union is not a real example of that. We want something different. Um, Is that what they mean? Is that our modern day democratic socialists? Is it that they don't want the violent part or do they want the violent part or how do they see it being different than what happened there? 
Yeah, so, so democratic socialists today have a PR problem of a century of disastrous experiments in, in Marxist socialism, explicitly Marxist socialism. All of these dictator types, whether it's Lenin or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or Fidel Castro or Hugo Chavez, they all claim that they are enacting the theories of Karl Marx. Uh, they basically style themselves as the deliverer of the Marxist system. And yet every single one of those ends in humanitarian disasters of, of epic scale, uh, world historic uh, scales of, of death and destruction. So uh, Marxist today uh, has to look back over the last century and say, uh, well, uh, we want Marxism, but don't confuse us for Stalin because otherwise they have uh, you know that baggage on their hands. Uh, so that, that's really been the academic push of the last 30 years so since the fall of the Soviet Union. First, uh, that event was seen as widely discrediting Marxist theory. It, it's like Marxism and capitalism had battled across the 20th century, and capitalism decisively wins. Marxism fails and falters in 1991. Uh, but here we are 30 years later, you have a bunch of academics that are trying to revive and rehabilitate Marx, stripped of that legacy of the previous century's disasters. Uh, so it's really kind of a conundrum that they have today. And what that means for them is uh, when they're trying to tell their own history of how, how do you arrive at socialist ends without going through the Soviet Union's historical baggage, well, they've invented an alternative narrative to try and differentiate themselves from the Soviet uh, Leninist-style uh, iteration of Marxism that emerged in the early 20th century. And one of the points that I'm making with the paper is... Uh, you can't really do that step because it's the Soviet Union that puts Marx on the intellectual map. In other words, had the Soviet Union not occurred, had Lenin not uh, succeeded in seizing control of a major world power, uh, we might be looking at a very different intellectual landscape of socialism today. Uh, it might be the case that one of Marx's competitors emerges as uh, uh, the more dominant theorist of socialism in the 20th century uh, rather than Marx himself. We might have Lasallian socialism. Uh, which is actually closer to what historical democratic socialism happened to be, but Marx and uh, Ferdinand LaSalle hated each other. Uh, they're two rivals from their, uh, the mid to late 19th century. Uh, we might have Rudbertian socialism. This is another theorist of uh, surplus value. He's one of the guys that uh, Marx may have plagiarized, and mm -hmm. his followers were constantly accusing Marx of plagiarizing and vice versa. Uh, so these are other competitor socialists that lived in the 19th century engaged with the Marxists, and they hated each other. They were always rivals, uh, but it wasn't guaranteed that Marx was going to become the king of the socialists after the turn of the century. It's really Lenin that elevates him into that uh, mode, and it squeezes out all of these other competitor socialist traditions uh, in addition to elevating Marxian socialism. Uh, so by the uh, aftermath of the uh, events of 1917, the Russian Revolution, Marx has now ascended from this place of relative obscurity, this place where he's one among many competitor fringe traditions, to now he's this mainstream figure that uh, far and away uh, has attained salience in social scientific conversations and academic conversations, as well as political conversations, and done so in a way that squeezed out all of the other socialist traditions. Uh, so the rest of the 20th century, you have the story of Marxism taking off in academic and intellectual works, as well as this political experiment that's being run in the Soviet Union and its copycats. So what you've seen in your research is that there was a huge jump in mentions of Marx 
and his works basically after 1917. So that's what you're kind of going out to prove is that because of the Russian Revolution, that's what really put Marx on the map. And that's the reason why to this day, you know, you see uh, Das Kapital or the Communist Manifesto being, you know, part of the literature that people read in university and, um, I think I think that you had mentioned basically just slightly more popular or just as popular as Plato's Republic. It's just exactly. become this kind of essential reading. So how did we get from from Marx being this obscure couch surfer to him <laughs> being the influence to people to this day, you know, to, to yeah. young people, to university students, to, to people like uh, proponents of the 1619 Project? Uh, how does that all kind of translate? Like, what were the steps that were taken? How did the Russian Revolution kind of set that in motion? Yeah, so Lenin basically builds a cult around Karl Marx, personally. Uh, Lenin, as early as 1903, I think it was, he started initiating an annual pilgrimage to Marx's grave uh, to pay uh, respects to uh, the socialist philosopher that was supposed to show us this way. So once he seizes control... Uh, in Russia, he immediately goes to work of putting the resources of the Russian state into propagandizing Karl Marx the person. Uh, this is actually a, a, an observation. It doesn't simply come from people that are critics of Marx, myself. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm, who is probably the most prominent Marxist historian of the late 20th century, uh, a very big figure on the academic left, and a diehard devoted follower of Marx. Uh, he actually did a study of the dissemination of the Communist Manifesto in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and he finds out that it was barely printed at all, or when it was printed, it stayed in these extremely small, tight-knit, radical circles. It never burst into the mainstream uh, from the time Marx wrote it in 1848 up until the eve of the Re Russian Revolution. And then Hobsbawm notices something really interesting. Part of Lenin's uh, mandate when he seizes control is uh, he is trying to differentiate himself from what he calls the vulgar Marxists that existed before him. Uh, those are the ones that watered down Marxism or, or strayed from the revolutionary course. He has all mm. of his schismatic uh, differences with them. But one of his ways of differentiating himself and his version of Marxism from them is uh, he views the works and texts of Marx need to be infused in and introduced to the masses. So it becomes uh, almost like a religion of uh, the Bolshevik state, that if you were a proletariat worker in the Bolshevik state, uh, part of your social mantra is that you have to learn the Communist Manifesto. You have to read the works of Karl Marx. Marx is introduced into uh, statuary. He's introduced into art. And the Soviet government, one of the first things Lenin does is he launches this massive publishing program to collate and collect all of the written works of Marx. He sends people out into the archives to find his letters, his unpublished books and texts, and then to translate them into languages across the world to make it a, uh, a mass-accepted uh, uh, social doctrine. So it's basically like taking this really obscure, kind of fringe, kind of goofy, and certainly academically discredited text. I mean, almost all economists had looked at this and said, uh, this is nonsense, it's based on an erroneous, obsolete theory. John Maynard Keynes, uh, no person of the political right, he's a uh, uh, very much a progressive economist, uh, writes, I think in about 1921 or 22, he says, Karl Marx's Das Kapital uh, is an obsolete textbook of no interest 
uh, or relevance to the world today. It's been discredited. So across the economics profession, everyone has said, this guy is discredited junk. And then Lenin comes along and says, no, we're going to fund and finance uh, teaching and instruction and mass printings of his works because this is part of what you are in a socialist state. If you're a worker, you need to know and learn and act upon Karl Marx. Uh, so right. it's really the power of the Soviet state, and Hobbsbaum notices this, that injects Marx with this thrust of interest and thrust of energy uh, that starts to spill over into academic and intellectual works. I also uh, had found that because they had dissolved the Russian Orthodox Church, which was a large part of people's lives and education, right? And, yeah. you know, that's where they were kind of learning from. It was uh, they separated the church and the state, right? And then basically ended up yeah. later on uh, under Stalin killing all of the, all of exactly the priests and, I mean. and seizing their property. Uh, but, but they started to fill in that gap, right? Where they yeah. said, okay, we're going to give you all of this stuff to read now. And so they started, I guess, indoctrinating the people, right? And that became yeah. part of the totalitarian movement. Well, yeah, and it's a command to all of the university systems, all of the uh, the, the lower, what we would consider the equivalent of K through 12 education systems. Uh, the new mandate from the Soviet government is that you must learn Marxist economics. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of joke sometimes, like imagine a, a modern day analogy would be uh, a really fringe uh, movement, say like the, uh, the Scientologist seized control of the government of Brazil and started saying, well, L. Ron Hubbard is our new philosophy in life, and this is the new textbook that we teach from in the schools, and we're going to use the resources of, uh, of the government of Brazil to spread uh, L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics to the rest of the world. It's, it's actually somewhat analogous to, uh, to that is what plays out with Marx, is you have someone that uh, most intellectuals had considered and deemed inadequate and had thoroughly refuted and proven that uh, he's just based on an error, and yet you have the power of this uh, this very large, well-funded, militarily aggressive state suddenly saying, well, now he's our guy. Uh, this is what we're going to build our entire education system around. So Marx is introduced everywhere. And then uh, once they've succeeded in, in infusing that into the education system they do control, which is the Soviet Union, and we also find the Soviet Union is very expansionary. Uh, mm -hmm. It moves in and takes over half of Europe after World War II. Uh, it also starts colonizing parts of the rest of the world. One of the things that they do is they, uh, they start shipping them copies of the Communist Manifesto, shipping them copies of Capital, shipping them copies of, uh, of much more obscure texts that they had translated to just infuse this into the education system. System. And sure enough, uh, you start to see the results of that. Wow, that's incredible. And you know, it, it's hard to kind of fathom how things would go that way, like how quickly things could swing, and how, you know, people would just get into that and become part of this kind of totalitarian movement. But um, I think that after living through what we've lived the past few years, we can see how easy it is for the masses to kind of just go along with a certain program if it's if it's shouted at them loudly enough and consistently enough, right? Right, right. Well, and they're they're promising grandiose results. Mm -hmm. uh, Marxists are pro promising like basically. Uh, 
prosperity and unicorns to the entire society. Just go along with our system. We have it all figured out. And if you uh, agree to this, you usher in the socialist revolution, then wonderful things will happen and all of your problems will be solved. Uh, and, th and they'll never really go back and consider how it actually plays out in practice. And if it does fail in practice, they'll say, oh, well, that's not real socialism. Uh, and there are parallels. We see this in other things. It's like with the lockdowns, it was the promises. If we all just lock down, uh, two weeks to flatten the curve and coronavirus will be over. And your mm -hmm. problems will be solved and then we can go on to uh, uh, the next big thing because you listen to us and our expert advice. Well, it turns out that the expert advice was a misdiagnosis uh, built on fundamental errors of epidemiology. And you see this over and over again. In It's a theme of central planning. Uh, people come up with grandiose plans on how to reorder society or the economy or health or you name it, science. Uh, some, you see some of this in, uh, in some of the climate, climate science policy debates. Uh, like We have all these proposed solutions that I would argue probably do not work in practice. Uh, they fall into corruption and public choice traps. But over mm -hmm. and over again, you have the planners. They see themselves as offering a way forward. And if you simply execute on my plan, wonderful things will happen. But then you get to the time of the execution of the plan and its problems, its internal intrinsic errors and faults and internal contradictions all rise to the top and suddenly it becomes dysfunctional. And if you control a totalitarian state like the Soviet Union was, uh, your answer, if you're in charge and the thing that you're doing isn't working, if people are, are dying and starving because your economic planning has, uh, has faltered, as happens in the 1930s in Russia in, in very catastrophic ways, well, what do you do if you're Joe Stalin? You go around and you start killing your opponents. You go around and start uh, enforcing your system through totalitarian means because people start to figure out that it's not working. And if they figure out it's not working, then they revolt, then they push back. Uh, so it's like tightening the screw down even further. And this is a recurring pattern you see in almost every attempt to exercise and implement a Marxist state across history. Yeah, yeah. Or I guess, so there's a big... Uh, connection there with central planning, in a sense, because yep. the Marxian state was kind of a technocratic state at the same time, right? Like it was led, if you look at the collectivization of farms, it was led by these experts at the top who were supposed to know how much grain to produce, what kind of tools to use, that whole thing. And that led to famine, that led to terrible things happening, hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people you know, I don't know the exact numbers for each famine, but such massive uh, death and destruction, right? And so... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a classic case of expert failure because each and every one of these five-year plans or, or great leap forwards or industrial attempts that occurs in a, a Marxist state, uh, it normally has the intellectuals. It has uh, self-proclaimed intellectuals that are trained in Marxian economics, and it says, we're going to give you the formula. In the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, they come up with some very, very complex mathematical attempts uh, to target production, uh, to target how much grain needs to be produced, to uh, come up with networks and how to allocate it. What are the inputs and what are the outputs we can expect from it? Uh, but one of the fundamental problems here uh, gets back to those errors that are at the root of Marxian uh, economic theory. Uh, so, so one of the problems that emerged in the late 19th century that's discovered before the Soviet Union's even a thing, uh, some of the economic critics that start to study this system, study Marx's works and books in the decades after his death, uh, they figure out that there's an internal contradiction. And that inter internal contradiction comes from the way that labor is priced. Labor is both an input for production, but it's also a priced item at a wage. 
So in order to successfully plan and implement around a system that involves labor as both a unit of production and input of production and a uh, uh, something that's that's paid for with a price in the, in the system. You have to simultaneously reconcile these two functions together, and it turns out that's a mathematical impossibility. Uh, in fact, mm. proved by ma- uh, mathematicians to be an impossibility. Uh, uh, 1906, there was a great little uh, pamphlet that uh, lingered in its obscurity by a, uh, a mathematician, Ladislaw Borkowitz, uh, and he uh, uh, basically proves that the Marxian system cannot math- mathematically work, and yet you have decades after decades after decades of them trying to make it work and every single time it ends in failure and famine followed by political repression to hold the system together. Wow, it's just it's just unbelievable and it, and it's even scarier that this is kind of still in the air now. There are still people who, you know, now we see division by race. We see a uh, division of other kinds. It's like a neo-Marxism that has kind of taken hold here uh, in our contemporary society. And and in a way, there's also some similarities there with the Russian Revolution, because prior to the Russian Revolution, or sorry, just before, you had all of these people who were disgruntled with the elite and with the status yeah. quo and with the power structures, right? And so that's a kind of uh, dangerous place to be. And so would you say then that um, before we maybe get into that, would you say that Lenin or, you know, the other Marxists were kind of successful in what they wanted to do, which was to spread Marxism beyond the borders of Russia and in a sense beyond the borders of time? Yeah, in a way, uh, you know, Lenin's project uh, you know, his country is, turns into a disaster, but his project of spreading Marx and Marxist doctrine um, is unfortunately a, a historical success. It's something that uh, inspires all sorts of descendants of, of Marxist thought. Uh, and, you know, one of those in particular, and you've already hinted at it, you know, we hear today the critical theory world, uh, which is often at odds with Orthodox Marxism, because Orthodox Orthodox Marxism is premised upon conflict between classes as the bourgeois versus the proletariats, the haves versus the have-nots in economic terms, and it's your class identity that's supposed to be the mechanism that drives history forward. Well, uh, various versions of critical theory, they'll, they'll substitute race in there or gender uh, or religion or all these other different uh, uh lines of divide in society, sometimes complex lines that they'll say are intersectional with each other, but they Mm -hmm. are children and offspring of the intellectual system that uh, is promoted through Marx and then propagated by Lenin, even to the point that uh, the critical theory tradition, which uh, comes out of Western Marxism, a branch of Marxism uh, not in the Soviet Union, but it takes place, uh, it takes root in Germany, and it spreads uh, into the English-speaking world uh, as a result of uh, German academics being displaced during World War II. Uh, So some come to the United States, some come to the UK. And uh, that Western Marxist tradition, it's often associated with the founding of an institute at uh, the University of Frankfurt in 1923 called the Frankfurt School. Uh, And there are descendants of that is where you get critical race theory and uh, other forms of critical theory. Uh, The interesting thing there, you know, just throw out a a historical tidbit, uh, the Frankfurt School itself, it's founded in 1923 And some of the original participants at its seminar, uh, there's a Marxist German philosopher by the name of Karl Korsch, and he gives a paper, which still exists, we have a record of it from 1923, 
where he is celebrating the fact that Lenin has reinfused Marxism with a revolutionary vigor. Now, of course, later turns on Lenin and says, well, that's the wrong way to implement Marxism, but he credits Lenin explicitly with uh, restoring the revolutionary vigor that jump-starts his project, which inspires the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School also is a recipient of some of those early ventures of the Soviet government when they're trying to fund the collected works of Karl Marx and all these translation projects. There's a collaborative uh, project that emerges between uh, uh, them and the Soviet Union on propagating Marx's uh, his work. So I guess this is a, a roundabout way of saying is if you ask a, a critical theorist today, uh, they'll say, yes, we're adherents of Marxism, but not that orthodox Marxism on class grounds, and we're certainly not connected to the Soviet Union. And what I'm saying is, well, you kind of are. Uh, you owe your intellectual tradition and your history to the fact that Lenin put Marx on the map. And even though you diverged from Lenin and you split from that as the strategy in the 1920s and 1930s as you started to see some of the problems that were emerging there, uh, you know, the Frankfurt School, the Western Marxist tradition really does get its jump start in the aftermath of the Soviet Union. That's very interesting. Um, and I would like to learn more about the Frankfurt School, but maybe we can table that for another discussion. But what I'd like to get into now is your research. So what exactly did you guys do and how did you do it and what did you find? Yeah. So we had been studying uh, all of these observations from contemporaries in the, uh, between about 1883 and the 1910s that keep commenting on how Marx is this really obscure guy. And they come from across the political spectrum. So one of the main ones that we found, uh, Frederick Copleston writes this monumental history of philosophy, basically from the ancient world to the modern day. Uh, it's one of the great uh, multi-volume works of the 20th century uh, from a British academic that's uh, it's really well regarded. It's a fun read itself if you've got the time. But he has an interesting chapter on Karl Marx, and he points out in that chapter, he says, you know, if the Russian Revolution had not turned out the way that it did, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, Karl Marx might just be some obscure 19th century footnote in the history of philosophy. Uh, so I'm reading it, and I'm like, that's really interesting. And then you start to see this observation made by multiple other people. Ludwig von Mises and Thomas Sowell, the free, free market economists, both make this observation in their works about Marx. Mm. But so do figures on the political left. I mentioned W.B. Du Bois made this observation. Uh, H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, who's also a, uh, a democratic socialist theorist in uh, in the UK, uh, he makes this, a very similar observation. And that it turns out there are dozens upon dozens of people saying that it's essentially the Soviet Union that put Karl Marx on the map. And we're looking at these and we start thinking, you know, this might be empirically testable. We mm. now have massive databases of tens of millions of pages of scanned text that go together. It's the corpus that makes up the Google Books library. And what they have done is going back to the 1500s up until the present day, they go and scan university libraries with uh, uh, text recognition software and digitize them. Uh, so it's wow. a great massive undertaking. It's one of the largest da data sets of, the, of its sort that's probably conceivably in existence in human history. Uh, you know, they, they have various estimates that uh, say they've probably scanned somewhere between 10 to 20% of all books that have ever been written uh, in various forms, uh, depending on the language that you're looking at. But it's a massive project. And Google put together this, uh, uh, this, this um, database, essentially, that made it available to the public. Uh, it's called the Ingram Reader. 
and I Google Ngram is you can find the number of times that a particular word or type of text or name is used in a given year in history. So I can look up the year 1873 and I can find the number of times Karl Marx is mentioned as a percentage of all books that are scanned and published in 1873. Uh, and you can do that for almost any author, uh, whether it's Plato, Aristotle, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, Martin Luther King, uh, John Locke, uh, you name it. You go across the entire corpus of, of uh, uh, intellectual history of who are the major figures and you can see how it changes over time. Uh, so I think this is a really interesting database. It's a neat tool. Uh, what can we do in this empirically? So I'm talking with Michael one evening and uh, uh, had shown him some of the Ngram data I had collected on Karl Marx. And you see he's kind of piddling along until 1917 and then he skyrockets. Just takes off. I was like, aha, there's something interesting happening here. This is clearly a response to the Russian Revolution. But can we demonstrate that? Can we prove it empirically? Uh, so there's a new statistical technique, relatively new, it's come up in the last... Uh, half decade or so uh, called the synthetic control method and basically what it does is you, you create an input of a very large database and uh, you run it through statistical software. Uh, we basically have a, a supercomputer that uh, uh, we created basically for this purpose of running these types of other and other types of very sophisticated models and uh, you, you, you load hundreds of thousands of data points into it potentially. Uh, it's a very, very large data set. So we, we studied 226 different authors across the intellectual canon from the ancient world to roughly the time Karl Marx is writing. And of that, you get their, uh, the number of pages they appeared in in a given year in Google Ngram. So you put that all into a, a massive database. What the computer does is it algorithmically fits a subset of those authors to the known trend line of Karl Marx's citations before 1917. Hmm. Uh, and you actually get a really, really tight fit. And what you can do is, so it would take like all of the, uh, all of the authors in our database from let's say 1880 to 1916, and they try to get the tightest fit possible to mirror the actual uh, trend line of Karl Marx. And once you've got that line, you can project it forward because now you know the weights of all of those other authors. So uh, these are comparables. They're comparable exactly. authors. Yes, so you, yes, You've got yes. a counterfactual history that hmm. shows, well, all of these people matched Karl Marx up until 1916. Let's assume the Russian Revolution never occurs and Marx just continues to follow that matched pattern. And now we see our counterfactual. And then the empirical test is to see if the divergence from that counterfactual is statistically significant. And it turns out it is in very, very strong and pronounced ways. Uh, so that's the result in our paper. We find that after 1917, Marx undergoes what we refer to as a statistical treatment. Uh, his citations skyrocket. Meanwhile, the fit citations of the synthetic control continue at that much, much lower level pattern uh, that fit the other authors that composed it. Now we can dig into who those other authors are, and it turns out synthetic Karl Marx is built up. He matches most closely with all of these other competitor socialists from the mid to late 19th century that he feuded with and hated. Wow. So it's Johann Carl Rodbertus <laughs> and uh, uh, Ferdinand LaSalle are the two biggest components, the donors to synthetic marks, which makes sense because in the 19th century, these are guys that are competing for that same far left fringe of the political sphere, uh, that, that same radical labor movement contingent. And they're feuding with each other for a very small segment of society, uh, but in very intense ways. 
And it turns out that the people that are closest to Marx that do not experience the treatment, they are not elevated by the Soviet Union. Lenin, Lenin has no interest in turning LaSalle into like this great model for building society. He only focuses on Marx. Uh, so when Marx diverges from a synthetic counterfactual built of, uh, of these other socialist contemporaries, we've got pretty clear evidence that it's Lenin and the Bolsheviks that are pushing Marx into academic salience. And just to give you an idea of the magnitude here, uh, Marx's citations basically triple overnight as a result of the, uh, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And we trace this through about the next decade or so, because now you start to have intervening events. But at least throughout the 1910s and 20s after this event occurs, Marx is just skyrocketing. Uh, whereas all these other socialists are piddling along at the same pre-treatment level uh, that our synthetic Marx showed. So their names are LaSalle. Uh, what are the other ones? Yeah, Rodbertus. And? Uh, uh, so Ferdinand LaSalle and, and Johann Karl Rodbertus are the, uh, the two main components. Uh, you also see other 19th century figures. So there's a spigeon of uh, uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon is another uh, socialist uh, competitor in that era. Um, you also get a little bit of Oscar Wilde and then Abraham Lincoln, who are just prominent 19th century thinkers uh, that, uh, that filter into that. But uh, it's like the lion's share of the uh, composite comes from these other uh, relatively obscure but contemporary 19th century socialists that were competitors to Marx. Well, the reason I asked you for their exact names is because aside from Oscar Wilde, uh, <laughs> does anybody know who these people are? Because I don't. I've never heard these names before right and so that kind of creates the point on its own is that he might have been as obscure as them but it's also possible that one of these would have replaced you know if if lenin had picked That's up somebody else good. instead of marx right like it, it, it's yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. that the russian revolution wouldn't have happened right 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 and, and you know, there, there's theoretical what-ifs of history. I don't want to get too far down that path, but what yeah. if Rodbertian socialism had emerged as the dominant socialist school rather than Marxian socialism? Well, we can go back and look at Robertus's ideas, and it turns out he is not interested in the violent revolutionary upheaval that Marx celebrates. Hmm. Same, same with Ferdinand LaSalle. LaSalle tries to achieve his reforms through legislative means and elections. Uh, so you get these other far less violent socialists. So maybe the system wouldn't have worked. It may have been an economic basket case. It almost certainly would have been because the underlying theory is wrong. But at least it's stripped of this genocidal tendency that seems to be infused with Marxism every time that it's uh, attempted to be acted upon. Wow. Amazing. So I guess it's kind of like almost the... Um the 1916 project, what would have happened, you know, the, the year before 1917, if, if yeah. nobody knew who Karl Marx was uh, back then, including Lenin, you know, if he would have still remained kind of in the fringe and Lenin hadn't been put in that sealed train yep. <laughs> uh, by the German authorities and sent back to Russia uh, to complete the task of destabilizing the political scene and and maybe contributing to the end of the first world war on, on the german front right i think yeah, that was yeah. kind of the idea there then we would be living maybe in a different world that's entirely the case i mean it's to the finland station was uh, uh the, the the famous description of the event of Lenin arriving in saint petersburg 
And, you know, the what-ifs of history are always fascinating in that sense. Uh, but, but I think it, it goes back to a more salient intellectual point. If we're looking at Marx as a, a theoretician, a doctrine of history, a, a uh, social scientist, and certainly as an economist, uh, he is someone that if judged by the merits of his ideas in intellectual discourse among other scholars that are... Uh, juxtaposing, letting it contest with other forms of economic theory, he loses every time. 100 times out of 100, Marx loses because he has a problematic, flawed theory of value, because he has an internal transformation problem that makes it impossible to execute on a system, because socialized planning is mathematically impossible. Uh, Marx loses every single time on the intellectual merits to the competitor economic theories, uh, and that was basically the judgment of the late 19th and early 20th century. But if you inject politics into it, you give it a revolutionary movement that's hmm. seeking to attain control of government, which is what Lenin did, you get a very different outcome. And it's the chance events of history, <coughs> the chance events of uh, missteps by the opponents in the white army and the uh, opponents in the weakened Russian government, uh, and it's the unscrupulousness, the ruthlessness of Lenin and then Stalin after him and then other copycats in other countries when they implement a Marxian revolution. Uh, basically what they are doing is they're determining the course of Marxian theory not on its merits but at the, the force of uh, a bayonet or a gunpoint. Uh, and that's, that's essentially how this gets popularized, which is a really uh, substantial historical finding. And it's one that many Marxists today are not happy uh, to see themselves associated with. Although what I'm saying is, uh, fine, if you want to make your arguments on intellectual space to revive or resuscitate bits of Marxist theory, let's have the discussion. But don't pretend that Marx came onto his own on the merits of his ideas. Uh, Marx became noticed in the intellectual space in the 1910s and 20s because he was infused with this mainstreaming effect of the Soviet Union's political system elevating him to the top. So, Phil, uh, there's a lot more that we can get into on this topic because this is like a huge area of your research, a huge passion for you. I'm really interested in this as well, and I hope that our viewers uh, enjoyed this discussion. But the last kind of thing that I want to think about here is kind of maybe some points about today. Yeah. So this is a bit tangential to your research, but it's in your wheelhouse because sure. you've you've been known to say, you know, that we're kind of in this era where there's a lot of collectivist forces. There's a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment. Uh, there's uh, this kind of neo-Marxist streak that we see in academia. Uh, and, you know, among students and among just regular citizens as well, you know, kind of that activist uh, faction of society, uh, people who are disgruntled with the status quo, um, who certainly after the 2008 financial crisis have just yeah. felt kind of disenfranchised. They don't know what to do. You know, there are some parallels there between the kind of feelings that were floating around and the state of affairs, you know, back in the early 1900s in Russia. I mean, not yeah. it's not the yeah. same world, but, yeah, but we, we is there anything we can but, learn? But there's yeah. certainly people that are, uh, yeah. Is there anything that we can kind of learn from that? And what do you think about well, all of those parallels? You know, times of crisis and times of, uh, of extreme disruption and uncertainty are dangerous precisely because they allow unscrupulous people, demagogues, to seize power. 
this is how you got Lenin and Stalin in the first place. It wasn't uh, the salience of their ideas. They didn't get like masses of millions of peasants to join them by reading uh, public pronouncements of the Communist Manifesto, although they would tell themselves that was their mythology. It's really a small band of mostly uh, middle to upper middle class uh, intellectuals uh, so, so in some way, kind of almost bohemians in a way, uh, that they mirror Karl Marx's own life in a similar way. These are people that don't have much in the way of careers or livelihoods or, or real contributions to society, but they uh, philosophize about socialism. When given the opportunity, the most unscrupulous of them seized control, uh, gained access to guns and armaments, and promptly started shooting anyone that got in their way. Uh, so that's a really scary uh, time in history to see that that happened, and that's uh, you know within the lifetime of uh, many of our grandparents and great grandparents that this occurred, and uh, some of the later events occurred within the lifetime of our parents and uh, in some cases our, our ourselves. Uh, socialism was a major world force until 1991 because of the Soviet Union, and uh, it, you know that legacy is still with us. But it's a very violent type of a system that took place in times of uncertainty when unscrupulous people used the theories of Karl Marx, uh, used uh, means that were at their disposal in very violent ways to put themselves in positions of power, and then human tragedy and cat catastrophe and uh, you know crimes against humanity occurred in the wake, all in the name of this trying to affect a Marxist system. Right, and I think it's because they wanted, like I was thinking about, you know, I said I said one last thing, but here's another thing that just came to mind. I was sure. thinking about the the Russian Revolution as it compared to the American Revolution, yeah. because you you had these kind of so uh, the Russian Revolution people were disgruntled. The American Revolution people were disgruntled. There were tensions. There was kind yeah. of a, a a feeling of breaking away from the kind of um, the system that that was in place. Right. But it happened very differently. And I wonder if, right. you know, there are many reasons to that. But was it that the Russian Revolution was focused on equality for all and the American Revolution was focused on liberty for all? Right. So there are philosophical differences of their underpinning. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Uh, part of the reason the, the American Revolution takes place and occurs on the lines that it does, uh, it, it basically comes from a, a reaction against a, an abusive political system from abroad. Uh, the British Empire was ruling the American colonies and, uh, in pretty atrocious ways, uh, including ways that had violated some previous agreements uh, of uh, you know how the colonies were to govern themselves. And it's really the reaction to those abuses that infuse it with a uh, philosophical system of liberty. Whereas the Russian Revolution, there are certainly abuses that occurred under the Tsar and previous government regimes, although I'd argue, you know, what we see in the Soviet Union tends, up, tends to be uh, multiple magnitudes worse mm -hmm. and far more deadly. I mean, you're talking tens if not hundreds of millions of people are murdered by the state under this thing that's supposed to replace it and make it better. Uh, but really, it's that uh, it's the language of equality uh, put forth in a time of political instability and disruption uh, that allows it to seize a, uh, its way to the top. But, you know, the famous uh, saying that you see in, 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 you know, the George Orwell quote, uh, where uh, some animals are more equal than others, even though we're all, all are equal, uh, paraphrasing him there. But uh, that's reflected in the Soviet Union's uh, 
ideology. It's reflected in the way that uh, the party leaders, the elite, are still at the top of society. And you have, in fact, what are really deeply unequal societies where a very small few in charge are living the great life. They're Stalin. And Stalin's inner circle until he decides to turn on them and kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of the country is just in abject poverty and misery, uh, is living uh, in probably worse conditions than ever existed in the time before that because of the state-imposed famines. And uh, uh, and on top of that, you've got basically a, a prison society, a gulag society, where uh, if you speak out against the regime, you can be seized in the middle of the night and shipped off to Siberia and forced yeah. into a labor camp. Uh, so yeah. Really horrific conditions, uh, all premised under equality. So in one sense, they ach- achieve equality for most, but it's an equality of misery. Yes, an equality of misery, exactly, and starvation and deprivation. Um, and so I guess the last thing would be then, so the the kind of bigger umbrella than the equality and liberty umbrellas, if we look at America versus the Soviet Union uh, during their respective revolutions, is that you have a regime that's based on collectivist notions and one that's based yeah. on individualism. Individual, right, right. And the Marxian system, it's a methodologically collectivist system. It thinks in units, it thinks in groups. Uh, in the orthodox version, it thinks in classes, uh, that classes move together. Uh, if you take a, a methodologically individualist approach, and this is almost comes about as nonsensical, uh, so this is something that later social scientists, Mansur Olson in particular, the public choice theorist, points out that methodological individualism undermines class consciousness of the Marxian society. Why? Because individuals not only uh, don't always go along with what their supposed interest of their class is, a lot of times they free ride. And it turns out that this undermines the ability of a Marxist society to operate. So what happens every time when uh, one of these systems falters, they try to enforce collectivism at the point of a gun. And that's when you get that, again, that recurring pattern of a descent into tyranny and mass murder and genocide and starvation and all the horrible things that we saw over and over and over again in 20th century Marxian communism. Well, Phil, I think that we've uh, been through a lot of the topic today. There's a lot more, like I said, that we can discuss on this. I suggest people go and read your work on AIR.org. They can follow you on Twitter. Um, they can also maybe read your uh, preprint if, they're, if they have access to it. And um, are there any last thoughts that you have? Uh, that would be, you know, pay attention to this history. I think it's important to know and remember, uh, including... Um, Remember for the reason that uh, these are societies that had real human victims to them, uh, victims of communism number and the hundreds of millions of, of people. Uh, it's a tragic history. It's uh, an egregious, uh, offensive history. And it's one that if we forget, uh, you know, we dishonor uh, the people that gave their lives uh, to this horrific system, uh, as well as uh, we, we start to stray from our own understanding, our own path. And, uh, you know, I, I would not want to get to a society that ever repeats that. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Okay, well, thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks to everyone out there for watching and listening. And um, feel free to leave your comments below. Let us know what you thought. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thanks.